I think I can I, hear you, but I can't see you. Let me turn my camera on. <laughs> yeah, the Linda Super Skinny Legend. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so nice to see you. Welcome to Tender Rage with Sunny Adcock, the show for the outrageously audacious, the loudly passionate, and the slightly delusional. Together with some of my favorite people, I hope to have new, inclusive, and exciting dialogues that holds space for the anger and joy that comes with coming of age. So brew a cuppa and have a listen as we keep the rage tender. I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation as the traditional custodians and knowledge keepers of the land and pay respect to others past, present and emerging. Listeners should be advised that this episode will discuss sexism and racism. Hey besties, welcome back to another brand spanking new episode of Tender Rage. Boy oh boy, it feels good being able to say that again. I for one never thought this day would come. I don't know if you guys felt that way. I would not blame you if you did, but I thank you from the bottom of my heart for sticking around and just for being so patient and understanding and kind and supportive as we waded through these technical difficulties and figured out the best way to deliver episode six to you. Episode six was absolutely a labor of love. It was recorded way back when in August in the middle of New South Wales' second and most excruciating COVID-19 lockdown. And following that remote recording were just a bunch of technical and personal issues and, and me also trying to finish my degree. And all of those things just culminated into a perfect storm wherein I just could not find the best way to get this episode to you in the time frame that I promised. So thank you for your patience and I apologize for all of that. But I'm finished uni now, we're out of lockdown and I'm really, really hopeful that we can resume our normal posting schedule and I have some really fabulous guests and conversations lined up that I think you're going to love. Anyway, just a couple of quick disclaimers. Obviously, this conversation was recorded some months ago and remotely over Zoom. Anyone who has ever tried to communicate with me online knows that my internet is horrendous. Uh, However, our fabulous co-producer and editor, Evelyn, has just made diamonds out of the mess that I gave her. So I hope you can give us just a little bit of grace whenever you hear some audio that may sound a bit mismatched. Anyway, I hope you love this episode. I love it. It's really near and dear to my heart. It's not just for Taylor Swift fans. So I can't wait to see what discourses come out of this, but also just huge thank you to Lynn for just absolutely bringing the energy and bringing the nuance and everything that we love over here at Tender Rage. Anyway, I'm gonna just get out of here and let you get to it. Enjoy. Lynn Matutu, hello. Hi. (laughs) What a pleasure it is to finally have you on this podcast. I have been eyeing you out for the longest time. I am so excited. And briefly, when we were chatting yesterday, I was just like, why hasn't this happened earlier? This is the collab that they've been waiting for. I think that we're just about to give them the biggest cultural reset since Normani's Wild Side. I hope that they're ready. I truly hope that they've got (laughs) their cells charged up, their mitochondria, the powerhouse. It needs to really just be ready to go because we're about to deliver some, some very piping hot information. 
Oh, periods. Now, I have been sort of an admirer of yours for a while now. You are sort of a jack of all trades. You are sort of a part-time model, pop culture connoisseur, um, legal extraordinaire. But I say that with a grain of salt, because can you explain to us your little legal situation? My little legal situation is I am currently in my like penultimate final year of studying law. So I can definitely provide the girlies with some intel. You know, I can do more than Elle Woods. I definitely can. But um, (laughs) what I would say is I'm going to charge the girls a hefty fee for my advice because my time. Absolutely. But also (laughs) the information that I give might not be the most accurate because I've been busy, like you said, in the last couple of years. I haven't had the time to really focus on the book. (laughs) (laughs) but you know what they're paying for the service that only you can give them and for that they should be grateful they should be they should be and they will be (laughs) receiving a successful outcome i can guarantee that i can oh my gosh well i can't wait to see the clients that come your way after this giving awards a run for her money i want to start this exciting conversation with a would you rather question that was actually left by our previous guest from episode five this beautiful baja alman she actually i feel left the most perfectly themed question for you and at the end of the episode i'm going to get you to come up with a would you rather question to gift our next guest but the would you rather question that i'm going to give to you to give our listeners a little bit of insight into your psyche to the wonderful mind is if you were to walk a runway show Would you rather have horribly uncomfortable shoes on? Would you rather have a wardrobe malfunction? Okay, so I feel like if I had horrible, uncomfortable shoes, I'm going to fall and I'm going to stumble to my death. And I've seen a lot of shows where these girlies are falling and their knees are bending and doing all sorts of things that they shouldn't be doing. Um, and the getting up process, especially if you're on a tricky runway, seems so scary because everybody's watching you and nobody cares about the clothes anymore. So I definitely, I mean, can I ask what the like malfunction of the wardrobe would be? Would it be a gross, huge disaster or? I feel like it's got to be somewhat of a spectacle. Like I'm imagining sort of a Janet Jackson type moment at the Super Bowl um, or just, you know, it's, it's being ripped or something crazy, something that is going to be in headlines either way. But I feel like you could probably make more of a story out of it. It's a little bit, um, it's a little bit more entertaining and more iconic, I personally think, than walking around like you have no business using those legs, you know? I would rather be known for having a gorgeous, fierce walk um, in heels, in any type of shoe, rather than not. So I'm definitely going to take the malfunction. The girls can gag, they can scream and shout, they can hoot and holler. It'll definitely be a bit of a a, a case and a spectacle, but look, the people can Mm -hmm. look at the garment and what's wearing the garment and they'll be amazed by both. So that's that. A hundred percent. And you know what? It's going to get a lot of attention for that designer. Um, And I feel like how you sort of walk back from that malfunction is what's going to sort of define the moment and could be a really badass like BDE moment. It will be because that one episode of Carrie, uh, Sex and the City where Carrie Bradshaw was walking in that like old designer show and she stumbled and yeah. fell and everyone was horrified. She stumbled, she got her shoes on, <laughs> she tried to get back and everyone was still looking at her like she was crazy. But if she had had a little <laughs> malfunction, for instance, if her coat fell off or something, people would yeah. be like, oh my God, she looks divine. And that's it. Yes, 100%.
I needed you for this episode because I just knew that, you know, in being a podcast that strives to talk about pop culture, politics, the messiness of our favorite things, I knew that Taylor Swift was going to be the subject of one of them eventually. It had to happen. And I was like, who am I going to have on this episode? And funnily enough, I, I had heard of you sort of on the scene because I feel like a lot of the POC creatives all sort of know of each other, have mutuals or whatnot. Um, but it wasn't until a beautiful mutual friend of ours had her birthday party and it just happened to coincide with the surprise drop of Evermore, Taylor's latest album. And um, when it happened, we were at a party and I had posted on my Instagram story, holy shit, Evermore's out. What is this woman doing to us? She already gave us folklore, the gift that keeps on giving. And one of our friends was like, Sunny, not you too. I'm losing so many of you to Taylor Swift. You know, not this white woman, not you educated black folk. Like what's going on? And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't know what to say. And everyone was like, you need to talk to Lynn, go straight to Lynn. And we connected and I found out that you two were Swifty trash. Absolutely. I have been very much on the same receiving end just as much as you have. Um, and actually, when Evermore came out, I don't even think I posted it on my on my main because mm-hmm. I would have received the worst slander. <laughs> and I would have been yep. the Marie Antoinette that would have sent me to the guillotine <laughs> off with his head. So, yeah, I, I'm very happy that we were reunited or united yes. to say to discuss this very important topic, which is near and yeah. dear to my heart. A hundred percent, because she is she is someone that is so divisive in the public eye. People either love her or they love to hate her. Um, there's sort of no in-between. I feel like people aren't really neutral when it comes to Taylor Swift. Yeah, it's very much a no Switzerland. We are going to be either painting her with blood or we are just going to sit here and put her on a pedestal. And we are definitely pedestal girlies. She's getting the true (laughs) acknowledgement that she deserves. But a lot of the masses, POCs, non-POCs, queers, non-queers, they just, they don't like her. They don't like the poor woman. They don't care for her. And it's interesting, you know, being one of the pedestal girlies um, who can somewhat see the criticism because it puts you on this camp where um you're 100 in the taylor swift defense squad but you're also like okay yes i hear some of what you're saying but hear me out and i feel like this is the episode that i want to open up people's understandings of the nuance that surrounds her and maybe help people understand why people like you and i who are educated and passionate particularly when it comes to racial politics stand this woman so much why she has such a hold on us but to also get into the more juicier aspects of sort of the treatment of her persona in the media, by the media, and just what she represents to pop culture because the scandals and feuds that surround this woman are just so insane and have initiated such interesting discourse that I really can't wait to get into it. But to begin that, I want to know what you love about Taylor Swift. Uh, Great, fantastic question. I was actually expecting that question unlike Beyonce, I was. Um, I love her songwriting. I think a lot of people overlook because we were saying yesterday when Taylor releases music um, in her traditional way of releasing an album, she'll do a couple of singles and sometimes those singles aren't always the best. They are very cheap sounding, very tacky. Like just think of the worst pop culture or like pop song ever. And it's just, it's very reminiscent of that. But if you actually get into the crux of her like work, she's such a genius writer. She's such a good writer. She has these incredible nuances and these Easter eggs, which she encapsulates in all her writing. And 
I don't, I feel like on a pop level, obviously there are other artists, but they're very few that can do that and do it so well. So being able to just live vicariously through her experiences, even if, because with Folklore and Evermore, they aren't directly her experiences, but because she's making these things so relatable on such a wide, broad spectrum, I think that's a skill that not many people have. So 100%. I love that about her. Everything else, I mean, we can get into a little later, but that's another one. And also she just makes really good music. She makes yeah. music that slaps. Slaps really with a capital P. Amen. <laughs> or a woman, as we like to say on this podcast. I think people really dismiss that about her. And I think part of that comes from the fact that a lot of people are sort of too distracted by her media reputation to actually sort of give proper time to her amazing lyrics. Um, And I think it also comes from the fact that her fan base, much like Harry Styles, who we discussed in our first episode of Tender Age, has a predominantly female fan base. And so people always want to dismiss female interests as frivolous. And especially because Taylor Swift writes such emotional music as well. Um, I think people are really quick to dismiss how well-written and emotionally sort of visceral her lyrics are. So I, I love that about her. I think that she is one of the best songwriters of our time. I personally don't know a better songwriter. And I think sort of my connection to her is honestly all to do with timing because I find it so funny that, you know, potentially if Taylor had sort of only gained prominence now or entered the industry now, I don't know if I would have given her the chance that I gave her as a young girl um, or if I would have resonated with her so much. But, you know, at the time when I'm eight years old, listening to You Belong With Me and singing it at the top of my lungs, I really resonated with her. She's 10 years older than me and grew up in a completely different walk of life. But I saw myself in her because she represented the underdog, that hopeless romantic, that young, naive girl who just wanted to be seen and recognized, who wanted her fairy tale. And obviously I was eight at the time. So that that was a storyline. You are definitely the target audience. Absolutely. Yes. A hundred percent. And I feel like for so many of the women that I know or so many of the um, Swifties that I know, there is such a huge amount of nostalgia and a huge sort of sentimentality around our connection to Taylor Swift, because for so many of us, she was such an integral part of our coming of age. A lot of us feel like we grew up with her, with the themes that she was singing about and just her growth as well. You know, she's releasing albums um, at 19, I think even as young as 16, I might be incorrect, but we essentially saw her grow up before our eyes. And a lot of that coincided with our growing up as well and coming of age. And so when you said live vicariously through her, I think that almost perfectly encapsulates what it's like to be a Swifty. And I think she makes that really easy to do because she's so vulnerable with her lyrics. You know, her albums have always been like sort of journal entries. They've been for the fans who are sort of smart enough to look into the Easter eggs, her sort of way of telling us the truth and bypassing the media. She makes her personal experiences feel universal and so emotionally tangible. And I think that can only help deepen the connection that she has with her fans because we personally feel like we have such a strong understanding of her. Yeah, there was actually just a point I was thinking of about the fact that she does write in a way that makes her emotions so tangible because I'm also a really big Lady Gaga fan and I think she's Mm -hmm. another really, really talented artist and an incredible writer. But I feel like lyrically I can't relate to her experiences Mm -hmm. because it's Mm -hmm. a different, completely different um, story that she has Mm -hmm. to tell. Whereas, obviously, it sounds great and it's genius and her lyricism is incredible. But 
I can't really grapple and grab onto that yes. and into something that I can relate to, something that's personal to me. But I feel like Taylor was just, there was a gap in the industry and she filled it. 100%. I mean, there are a few artists like her who have had the incredible capability to reinvent themselves so consistently throughout their career, to remain relevant um, and mainstream after as many years as she has been, you know, 10 plus years, and she's still, you know, on the best sellers, you know, she's topping the charts. And I think that's one of the things that people hate about her is that one thing about Taylor is that she will rise from the ashes. She is like a phoenix. She's not going anywhere. And she does it on her own terms. She's not going anywhere unless she wants to go somewhere. Yes. <laughs> Which, um, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see in the future what that looks like and how she sort of how she stays relevant you know she's continued to stay relevant without sort of morphing into what today's sort of social media celebrity and icon looks like um and she's managed to stay sort of really personable to her fans despite her level of success like a lot of her fans are familiar with the fact and maybe some of our listeners might not be that she communicates with her fans quite regularly on tumblr or at least she used to she had really strong relationships with fans on tumblr um, and was quite regular on it you know she's invited fans to her house before she's baked cookies with fans on valentine's day she has free meet and greets at each of her concerts um she leaves easter eggs um intentionally because she knows that they mean so much to fans so i feel like to be that sort of personable while being such a huge mega star is a really rare thing to do and I think that has helped give her such longevity. We know why we love Taylor. We know our personal journeys and connections and the songs that hit and just really make us feel so emotional. But let's talk about why she's what I would call a problematic fave. I think maybe to a lot of people on the surface, they might not get why we would use that verbiage, why we would call her problematic. Um, for other people, they'd be like, yeah, she's really problematic. Um, it sort of depends what side you sit on. What do you think makes it difficult to be a Swifty or something that we're sort of almost feel like we have to hide or be apologetic for, especially as sort of, you know, non-white, diverse community members. Why is it that people love to hate Taylor Swift? And what has that experience been like for you that you think, if you could sum up, what is the crux of, of what's going on? I think from the get-go, just physically, Taylor is like a six foot something white woman with blonde hair and blue eyes. She is the pinnacle of whiteness and she's been very apolitical for a long, long time. And a lot of her criticism has been the fact that she hasn't used her privilege, which we know she has, to speak on greater issues that are relevant to some of her fans like you and me. And there's been a lot of discourse because the majority of Taylor's audience when she first started, she was a country artist before she was a pop artist is she was like appealing to Southern states and the American nation. And she was definitely marketable to the deep South. And we know the history and the states regarding the deep South. So I feel like that's sort of transcended into her being then linked with sort of weird outright politics and people being yeah. like, okay, she's either a Trump supporter or she's this and that because she just refuses to speak on anything otherwise. Okay. And because of her um, status and because of what she looks like, it's very easy to affiliate her with things like that. 
So if you are a POC and you are listening to Taylor Swift, it's almost considered to be contradictory to your own interests because it's like, why are you then supporting this woman who does not care about you at all? So that's definitely where a lot of the criticism comes from. And I feel like most recently, because she has been speaking more politically and speaking about like social justice issues more openly now more than before, it's definitely sort of set a line as to where she stands and what her values are. And also I feel like because she was very much just like, I'm going to release my music and I'm going to go good luck everybody else. No one really knew anything about where she stood mentally. Like, when you're on that level, you sort of do owe the people a responsibility to be like, okay, I have influence over this many people. Here's how I'm going to influence them. Whether it's for good or bad, you're expected to take a side. So, yeah, that's where it definitely came from. And I feel like the wheel is definitely rolling now. Yeah, that was really well said. And I think it's it's interesting because when you look at it, um, I think that sort of expectation from celebrities to sort of be a voice for the people or to at least understand and support the people has always existed to some extent, but I think when she first entered the industry as a young girl and social media wasn't as influential as it is today, I don't think that that was such a pressing demand of audiences. Whereas now, um, seeing as she has sort of continued to remain relevant during the evolution of stan culture per se, it's now something that I think a lot of fans view as non-negotiable. Like you want to know who the person whose rent you're paying um, or whose house you've paid for, who they support, especially when whoever they do or do not support often has sort of detrimental consequences on your standard of life, or at least in the American political scene as well. If you're financially supporting a Trump supporter and then your life is being um, jeopardised by Trump policy, then the correlation, it just doesn't, the maths doesn't add up. I can definitely see why people that's hard to digest and why you would sort of assume looking at Taylor Swift that her policies were more conservative and it's only been sort of recently, like you said, that she's come out and said no, I do not believe in this. This is not what I stand for. So I think all of that is really, really valid criticism. I think some of the more invalid criticism is that I think when you actually look at her, I think that she's suffered from what I like to call the Anne Hathaway effect. And this is something that we spoke about on the phone yesterday because a lot of people don't know this. There was a period on the media that people just love to hate Anne Hathaway. Um, They called themselves the Hathaway haters and they just came as such a strong force. And their main criticism was that as an actress, she was too serious. And I think that actually all began during Devil Wears Prada, because if you look at that film, everybody else who starred in it, that film has just done wonders for their career, Emily Blunt, Meryl Streep. But her character, uh, I believe Stanley Tucci actually said this, that her character was just there to sort of react to everybody else's comedic genius. And so she was just seen as really serious. But, you know, aside from that, she's really passionate about her craft and her process. You know, she's she's very enthusiastic. She's considered slightly manic and she gets really emotional when she accepts, you know, awards. She's somebody who through and through, you know, was a theatre kid who's not necessarily interested in being famous, but who just loves what they do and really is out there living their dream. And I think that that is something that Taylor Swift has been subject to. I think people don't like that. She's a little bit nerdy. She is slightly manic. She still sort of, you know, lights up when she receives awards. She's still consistently surprised because she's so passionate about what she does and has been sort of ruthlessly ambitious from such a young age. And people don't like a woman with ambition and a woman who walks the line between, 
you know, not necessarily being humble, but she's proud of her work. She wants to win. And I think we live in an age right now where we want people to be mysterious and unbothered. Like you either want women to sort of not care about how good they are, or you just want them to shut up. We punish women for a lot of those things. There's really harsh expectations. And I think a lot of that is why people love to hate her because she's consistently killing the game, but she's not really adhering directly to some of the most predominant sort of standards of the music industry that they have on women. Yeah, it's very that. And it's also, like you said, she just wants to release her music. Like the girl just wants to release her music and make her fans happy. She does not care about many other things. And when she gets those accolades, which she deserves, and she's genuinely surprised because, you know, she might not have thought um, that she was going to receive it or whatever. She's proud of the work that she's released. And that success should allow to be celebrated. But when she does jump up and she's shocked and surprised, people are like, wait, don't act like you didn't know this was going to happen. How do you know, girl? Like, what accolades have you collected in the yeah. last couple of weeks? <laughs> what, what the hell do you know? Like, if you were doing something that you genuinely love and you're so passionate about it and you're doing it okay. so successfully, if you were receiving these um, acknowledgements and these accolades, then you would definitely have the same reaction. And mm-hmm. it's just the like when award shows were still a big thing, I feel like they've definitely died down because people don't really care about that anymore. Yeah. But I would remember I'd like, watch the Grammys after school and I'd, there'd be like tweets from the VMAs and everyone would be like posting all these reaction videos, etc. etc. And all the comments would be like, Oh, why is she doing this? Or why is she doing that? Similar with any other artists, like who is that? I think it was like Jennifer Lawrence or something, and she's an entire problematic woman on her own. I'm not a Jennifer Lawrence stan, but using her for an example, (laughs) she would be very surprised when she would receive these accolades and maybe she was putting a front, maybe she wasn't. But hello, if you want an Oscar, you're going to jump up and down. Like, (laughs) 100%. If I lost an Oscar to Taylor Swift and then she walked on stage looking like she could care less, I'm sorry, but I would want to beat her so hard. I'm like. meeting her backstage. <laughs> I'm meeting her backstage. Literally. We're going to have a one-on-one, a one-on-one discussion, a tete-a-tete, as the French say. Yes, I was just about to say that word. I learned that word this lockdown, and it's my favourite thing ever. because It's I my favourite thing. 21 years without knowing about that word. It's a gorgeous word. Every single time I'm about to have lunch with my bestie at work, I just write tete-a-tete, and she's like, we... <laughs> Wow. If our listeners take nothing else away, I hope it's that. Ladies, <laughs> if you want to go and lunch with your bestie now, that's the only way to send an invitation. <laughs> yes. Tet-a-tet and spell it right, okay? Don't forget the little yes. accents. <laughs> <laughs> Don't miss those. Oh but yeah, it's very oh. random and it's weird that a lot of people would be feeling so personal about that. Like, yeah. You know, I think that's part of the sort of more sexist commentary that has followed her her entire career. I mean, obviously it's important to acknowledge that even um, being a victim to sexism, she has been shielded from a huge portion of it because of her white privilege. But um, definitely her career has suffered at the hands of sexism. I mean, I don't know another female artist who has been crucified to that extent for their love life, for being a serial dater or being unlucky in love or for even writing about their emotions. You know, think 
of artists like Ed Sheeran, Bruno Mars, Harry Styles, Shawn Mendes, who are sort of pop or R&B artists who consistently write about their love lives. But when a woman does it, it's like, oh my goodness, like all she's good for is heartbreak. She's just setting her future boyfriends up for failure. She's too personal. She's too emotional. She's too naive. She's crazy. She is hysterical. Um, And I just think that's so unfair because literally every single artist will sing about love. And if they're not singing about love, then they're probably objectifying women in really sexist rap tracks but to actually then instead choose to make really meaningful songs about your genuine sort of emotional experiences in a relationship is a really positive thing that only women seem to be punished for but when a man does it he's really sensitive and emotional that was just sort of a line that people kept spewing that oh my gosh she only writes about her boyfriends or her romantic relationships I'm sorry but if you were Taylor Swift with the access to the Hollywood men that you did have yes I would be dating all of them until I found the one you know I'd be doing rounds I'd have them all at once actually (laughs) I would do it for free and I'll do it again yeah. <laughs> it goes back to the fact that you just hate women and you don't know how to express that. Yeah. Call it a day. Save us the time. I do not have the yeah. time to read your 3,000 word article <laughs> on your little uh, blog post about why this and this and this mm-hmm. and this. Just say you hate women and go. Literally. These people in this industry, they will crucify any female artist to a T over what they wear what they look like, Mm -hmm. what they're releasing, what movie roles they're taking. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to dismiss that many people have seen Taylor Swift as being a white feminist and being somebody who has written songs with a lot of internalized misogyny. You know, she has a lot of early lyrics specifically sort of in her first three albums, I want to say, slut shaming girls who took her boyfriend or who took her crush. And, um, You know, she definitely expressed some pick-me attitudes and she definitely sort of adhered to this narrative that she was always being victimised by bullies, by the media, by quote-unquote skanks. You know, the victim mentality has definitely helped her case. And those things are obviously worth criticising, but I would argue that any girl, unfortunately, in the early 2000s, early 2010s, would be writing similar lyrics because that was how we thought back then. That was before we became aware of internalized misogyny and when we um, hadn't yet focused on who the real enemy was, that was the sort of narrative that was sold to us is that the other girls were our our enemy for stealing the men that we wanted to save us. And we've since evolved from that and she has too, which I think is the really important thing to note. But I think crucifying her for sort of being brave enough and bold enough to say sentiments that we all resonated with and expressed at that young age. I don't know how productive that is. Yeah, and also, especially considering that when, like, a female artist, for example, Taylor, sort of says, wait, I've since learned better, like, why then should you be criticised for bettering yourself when Mm -hmm. the male counterpart is just not bettering themselves at all. No, exactly. It's still running rampant with the same sort of outdated ideologies, 100%. I want to actually read out this quote from a really viral BuzzFeed article written a few years back by Ellie Woodward. Um, it was actually written during the peak of the Kimye v. Taylor scandal, which we will unpack. I think it's a little bit harsh, but I think it actually does somewhat sum up her early feminism, um, because I, yeah, I would love to unpack this with you. So the quote, it is a direct quote from Ellie Woodward, says, Swift invokes feminism to ensure her posture as victim. I'm not going to lie. There are some elements, because I, I like, give an example. There was a show on Netflix or something that made a joke about her dating habits, and she tweeted saying, 
Netflix, you know, blah, blah, blah. She was sort of like shading Netflix on Twitter, being like, you know, I thought women were supposed to support women, blah, blah, blah. I think that comment is accurate. There is definitely a difference when it comes to like who this feministic ideology is supporting and who it's not. And that 2013 Taylor read 1989 was definitely this like girl boss is the equivalent of feminism. She was like, no, this is it. This is definitely the pinnacle of feminism. Just women being besties and supporting other women. Mm -hmm. And that might be the case, but there's definitely so much more to that. So that criticism is very valid. And I'm just thinking now, I'm back to the squad and everything, you know, with Carly Kloss and Gigi mm. Hadid, I think. That was yeah, scary. Like it was <laughs> just like this kind of weird, like, mean girl-esque clan of yeah. just super tall, really pretty, skinny white women. And I think in her mind, it, it definitely was like, this is a place of security and safety. Yeah. But she probably might not have realized how it was translating in the sense that mm. you now think that this is it, the peak of feminism. Mm-hmm. You are now a certified feminist icon, but mm-hmm. you are looking at it through such a tiny little minute lens that you're not realizing that there's a bigger picture. Yeah, it's, re- it's really interesting because... When you looked at that squad, I think the only person of colour from memory was Zendaya. And she only made appearances. I think it was just in the Bad Blood music video. When you looked at that group, it definitely represented one type of woman. And given how many women were in that group, it's almost a statement to have those women exclusively be white slim, tall, and blonde. You know, I think it's different if you're surrounded by your two besties who happen to be this way. But when you have a whole sort of roll call lineup of girls around you, when numbers is not a problem and they all look the same, then a pattern starts to emerge that becomes really clear. And granted, I never want it to sound like we're crucifying somebody for having friends, but I think that squad represents the version of Taylor who was frozen in time at 16 or 19, who sang frequently about being the underdog, about being bullied by not being a cool girl, by, you know, who sang about not really connecting with other girls. And I think that this was her finally saying like, look, I have my girlfriends, I've been bullied, so I'm going to cherish them. I'm going to take them everywhere with me. I'm finally um, sort of the central part of this strong unit. And so I think it was such a personal manifestation of her trying to reclaim friendship and trying to celebrate womanhood that was so personal that she sort of didn't understand at the same time what a political statement it was, you know, particularly when for so long I've always believed that Taylor Swift is the embodiment of whiteness. And when I say whiteness, for our listeners, I don't necessarily mean it as, you know, oh, she's a white woman. I'm also half white. I say whiteness as being something that anyone of any race can uphold as as a sort of a construct and a system that wants to sort of maintain and protect or leave unchallenged the white cultural norm above others. And she definitely represents that. And I think that was just the biggest embodiment of it, especially because this is not connected to whiteness. This is a tangent, but Taylor Swift doesn't really often work or collaborate with other women specifically as well as songwriters and producers. Like she has an amazing team around her. I know Aaron, um, I think Dresner or Dresser is his last name, Jack Antonoff. But for the most part, aside from her squad, that was a huge thing for a while and then quickly disbanded, she doesn't actually work with that many women. Yeah, she doesn't. Now that I think about it, I mean, I know she's worked with Haim and she's probably had like 
a feature or two on another song. I can't, it's not coming to mind now. None of them are coming to mind. But yeah, she doesn't. And I don't think her team, majority of the team that she does work with, like her producers and everything, mm. I don't think it is a, like a do- women-dominated um, space, mm. which is mm. interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, it's very interesting. I don't know what it means, but I just thought, hmm, very, very interesting. But I, I think... Unfortunately, because of internalized misogyny and patriarchy and what we see in the media, um, unconditionally loving other women seems like a radical and crazy concept. And then you realize, oh my goodness, no, this is just sisterhood is natural and beautiful. And we've been lied to this whole time. But I think for a lot of us, that was the first step to claiming our feminism. But the thing is, most of us, particularly those from more diverse backgrounds who were also subject to, say, racism or homophobia or ableism, um, because of our personal experiences and, and lack of privilege, we then use that as a stepping stone to look more deeply into feminist into a feminist theory that was um, more inclusive and um, grounded in intersectionality. And I think because of Taylor's personal experiences of privilege and the sort of limits of her own worldview, we didn't see that happening, at least not publicly. What we saw was the maintenance of a sort of very singular white feminist ideology that was only scratching the surface of what feminism as a movement should represent. Yeah, it's it's definitely very that. It's this is the experience that I have. This these are the eyes that I can see the world through and this is what I'm going to make of it. But also I feel like in that era and this is not to excuse it. It was definitely a different time like 10 years can make a huge difference yeah. on societal thoughts and societal constructs. And if she were to pull a stunt like that now, she would have been torn down very quickly. And that's not even with cancel culture or anything like that. It's just, it's not something that is tolerable on a global scale anymore. Okay. Sitting there and just being like, no, this is this is it. This is my experience. This is all I know. And I'm going to take it and run with it. Instead of trying to grasp at, like you said, an intersectional perspective where you can have multiple things exist at the same time. Yeah, it's definitely very much like if you hadn't grown from that then that's a problem but if you have grown from that and you have since learned what you need to learn then good you've been listening to tender rage with sunny adcock featuring guest lynn matutu this concludes part one of our two-parter episode stay tuned for part two where lynn and i discuss the feuds and controversies that surround the famous Taylor Swift.